0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with
1: Viator. Hey,
0: it's Max. Before we get started, a quick word from Squarespace. If you are thinking about making your next move, maybe you're going to uh, start a business, change careers, launch a creative project that's just been burning inside of you, Squarespace is the place to do it. They've got award-winning templates and creating your website is simple, intuitive, easy and you don't need to know a lick of code to start your free trial today go to squarespace.com and enter the offer code longform to get 10 percent off your first purchase plus a free domain thank you squarespace uh also just before we start i want to tell you about a uh, another podcast i've been working on i'm not the host just producing and it is called missing richard simmons It's about the fitness guru, Richard Simmons. You might know him from, like, sweating to the oldies. Uh, Here's the thing about Richard Simmons. He hasn't been seen publicly in three years. On February 15th, 2014, he did not show up to teach his class in Beverly Hills, and uh, he has not shown up anywhere since. The show is hosted by Dan Taberski, and uh, it's Dan's search to try and figure out what happened. I think you might like it. Go to missingrichardsimmons.com to learn more or subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And here it is. The Longform Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us
2: on The Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm joined by one of my co-hosts, Max Linsky from Longform. That was a very pleasant and formal hello. Thank you, Max. It's like you think that I don't prepare for these introductions, <laughs> but here I am changing it up.
0: You, you have been uh, classing up the joint for years, but that just took it to a new level. Aaron is not with us. He's uh, doing magical things in California. You were doing magical things in Minnesota.
2: I was in Minnesota. I was there doing some reporting, and uh, Anna Marie Cox, uh, longtime political reporter, commentator, writer, uh, lives in Minneapolis these days, so I took the gear out there and uh, managed to catch her at her apartment, and uh, it was great to talk to her.
0: Uh, I think we could describe her career as insane. I think her, her I think her CV counts as insane. It, Can you, like, tick through it?
2: It's sort of like a catalog of modern political media. Like, now she works for MTV, who she writes columns for. She does the... Uh, interviews at the front of the book for the New York Times Magazine, but you could name a publication she's probably written for it from GQ to the Guardian. Also was the original wonket under the uh, Gawker media umbrella was the person who made that what it was, which was very prominent at the time. And even if you go back to she worked at suck.com and was the editor of that and
0: a prolific writer for suck.com so she has really actually seen it all it's totally fascinating I am looking forward to this one uh, Aaron if he were here would have some uh, hilarious witty way to say he would that uh, MailChimp is sponsoring the show I uh, I don't possess such things I don't just have go that, straight to it Get I don't have that it. kind of flair I'm just gonna tell you 14 million people use MailChimp to send their email newsletters and uh, you should do the same we use it out uses it Longform uses it here's Evan with Anna Marie
2: Cox. Anna Marie Cox, welcome to the podcast.
1: It's good to be here in my own apartment. Yes.
2: This is a (laughs) (laughs) this is a full service podcast. We will come to your location in the Midwest if we want the interview badly enough. It's a lovely apartment. Also this coffee is delicious. Uh, I feel like we could do a whole podcast where you describe the method by which you made this coffee, yeah. which involved Bluetooth. In an app, mm-hmm.
1: um, and Chemex. i take my coffee very, very seriously.
2: <laughs> um, I wanted to start talking about a time and place where we sort of almost crossed paths, but I think didn't quite ever in person. Like we met a few years ago, mm-hmm. a few years back, but back in uh, the Bay Area in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you remember, we... Uh, share a friendship with Bill Goggins, one of the best editors uh, yes. I've ever worked with and one of the a best very, very humans. great friend and uh, and wonderful person. I think I knew about you a little bit because he was running for Suck.com and you were running for Suck.com. I was and editing.
1: I was an editor. You were editor
2: at, at Suck.com. Suck. Yeah. And I just wanted to start at Suck.com partly because I feel like uh, I'm not remotely the first person to observe this, but like much of what happens on the internet today, if you go back and read those Suck.com pieces is reflected in something that was kind of like started in that. Uh, I think
1: the sensibility that we had has become kind of the personality of the internet. Yeah. Or a certain section of the internet.
2: Tell me a little bit about how you, uh, where you were at that time and how you got into
1: I that. I haven't told this story in so long. Wow. Um, so I am a you know PhD program dropout. Mm hmm. I had gone to Berkeley for a PhD in American history and found I did not love reading a history about history very much. I was lucky enough to like I went to University of Chicago undergrad where we did primary sources for everything and like I just I wanted to like just start writing. I wanted to like start doing stuff, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. rather than like earn my stripes working up the ranks and as a TA and whatnot. And Journalism seemed like maybe a place that I could do that, right? Start doing cultural criticism like right away, not having to get like letters after my name. So I actually moved to New York. And I was in New York um, getting some culture writing gigs here and there. But my main job was I was an editorial assistant at Knopf, which is just dry as toast, deadly boring job. Anyone who's ever been an editorial assistant can attest, I think especially like a big legacy imprint, you know, you carry around the jacket, copy and I don't know, it's very reverent. And um, I found it not just boring, but I also had a lot of free times on my hands. So I was participating in all these like listservs. And one of the listservs I was participating in was called chug changa. And it was like nominally about indie rock, like the chug changa is like the sound that like jangly guitars make. And like Steve Albini was on it and Jared Cosloy from Matador and like other people that you I could name from the mid-90s. And one of the rules was that you were supposed to keep things to music. And for some reason like I just thought that that was dumb and I would just post stuff that was like started out about music and then like went somewhere else like Kentucky Derby. I remember it was one of the things I posted about and it would like ritual that like the guy that ran the, the serve would like send me a note saying, I oh, no, you're not supposed to do this. Um, And that bad attitude and snarky behavior caught the attention of Joey Anuff, who was one of the guys that started Suck. Mm-hmm. When it was a secret offshoot of Wired. Wired yeah. And I remember I got an email from him and it was said, you know, I'm interested in talking to you about writing for Suck.com. And I was like, this sounds like a porn site. So, oh, because I actually had written. <laughs> Like a couple of um, porn pieces,
2: <laughs> about porn or for. Or I'd you written had actually. Written four I'd porn actually sites. written
1: a couple of things like desperate in grad school. Like I'd written a couple of like, but it was not you know it's not fun or interesting stuff to do. You realize if you're doing it more than once. Like uh-huh. the first time you write a porn story, it's like oh, this isn't. but then it's like no, this is just dumb. And so I was talking to a friend of mine, and I said oh, I got this funny email, you know, to do more porn writing, and she was like, no, that's a real site, and she said in fact I think you'd like it. And so she called it up and I looked at it. And in fact, I did like it. It was rebelling against everything else on the net yeah. at that time. Yeah. Like the look of it was different. It was one essay a day and it ran as one straight column.
2: Like a skinny column. Skinny column. A skinny column in the middle.
1: Down the middle of the page. And their big hobby horse at the time was deflating tech utopianism.
2: Yeah. Which was running absolutely rampant. This is the midst of the dot-com boom.
1: Right. And so I made contact with Joey and then it was like two phone calls later. They're like, will you move here and be our editor? (laughs) And I had not met either of them. We had not, like I had not written anything for them. Like the the site barely existed. Um, But Moved out there.
2: This may just be that I because I, you know, worked for Wired at that time. So maybe I was like more aware of it than most people, but it felt like the first place that people were like, You've gotta go read it. It was a digital only thing that you like you gotta you open up in the morning or whatever and like you've gotta go read what they're doing, but also that it was like I mean it was takes. It was like takes was on takes. the news. Yeah. It was and takes, takes that started in one place and I ended in di- an entirely I am a different other place.
1: Very loyal defender of the take. Um, because you know there are dumb takes, yes, and we have this whole vocabulary of takes now that's pretty like derogatory. But but you know the idea was presenting a framework that no one else has thought of, uh-huh. right? Um, and that's what we tried to do. Yeah, and that's what I mean. Honestly, that's like still what I try to do. I mean, what we were doing was reacting. We a lot of it was reacting to very current Silicon Valley news, and a lot of it was kind of just pouring cold water on it you know um but also we expanded to other stuff you know like we i mean one of my favorite pieces i've ever written honestly was about buffy the vampire slayer i
2: read that one yeah yeah
1: um which wound up talking about juvenile criminal justice (laughs) (laughs) which you know like that's actually part of probably a good example of like the way these things kind of happened and how i became by the way I had been a pop culture writer and music writer for most of my career up until Suck. Uh-huh. And it was at Suck that all that stuff got much more kind of pointedly about politics.
2: So how did you end up in D.C. like fully covering politics from there?
1: So the economics of the dot-com boom came for Suck. <laughs> and, and for many others. And for many others. And it was just... They were looking for ways to monetize everything, and I just didn't want to. It just went against all my sensibilities and why I do what I do. So I quit in actually fairly dramatic fashion. And pretty much immediately, I got a phone call from somebody in Mother Jones, San Francisco office. Yeah. And they offered me a job. And it was actually as an editor. One of my jobs was to edit the pop culture section of Mother Jones. But it was also working at Mother Jones. So, you know, politics just sort of started to like the Venn diagram of my writing. Got to look more and more like a circle Mm -hmm. with politics being like covering everything.
2: And one thing I'm interested in, because I don't write about politics generally, or I try to avoid it if I can. What what do you think it is or was that what originally interested you about it?
1: I mean, when I say that, you know, like my writing, the Venn diagram sort of look more and more like a circle. I mean, for me. I also, you know, went to college and went to graduate school at the height of cultural studies Mm -hmm. where people were kind of turned on to the idea of seeing almost everything through a political lens, like name a cultural product and you could find politics in it like i actually when i was at the daily with the maroon um the university of chicago and editing the culture section there, art section there, we had a 90210 corner that was like a mock postmodern, you know, analysis of 90210 every week. Uh Which, I mean, so maybe younger readers don't remember this part of academics, (laughs) but that was kind of a thing. Actually,
2: I remember from uh, catching up on your old Suck articles that one particular line, which was about shooting Stanley Fish in a barrel. Yes. (laughs) Which seemed very much of that time.
1: (laughs) yes like um, so you know a lot of my sensibilities about culture kind of formed in a atmosphere where I was looking at culture through this political lens so it's always been a mix for me and one of the ways that I continue to find politics compelling is that it's everywhere like mm-hmm. and especially in this particular era you can't unsee the politics in all of our lives and all of culture. You know, like we have an entertainer president.
2: Yeah, ultimately your (laughs) Venn diagram became our country's Venn diagram. Your Venn diagram if you're ready. I
1: mean I didn't start it, but like I mean that is that is what happened. You know, those things are linked now very firmly. And again, maybe linked isn't the right word. I do think the Venn diagram that's a circle is a better kind of way of thinking about it. Because like it's you see one through the lens of the other. <laughs>
0: All right, I'm going to put Evan and Anna on hold for a second and uh, tell you a little bit about some sponsors that are making today's show possible. First up, our old friends at Squarespace. And if you uh, have decided to take on a new challenge, maybe you have a resolution of some kind, you're going to finally get that business off the ground or put that project up. Uh, I myself have been working on a podcast, told you about it earlier. It's called Missing Richard Simmons. We needed a website for Missing Richard Simmons, and we used Squarespace. It was so simple, it could not have been easier. Here's why. Squarespace has award-winning templates, and everything looks beautiful. It's a simple, intuitive process. You don't need to know any code. You can add and arrange your content and features with the click of a mouse, and there's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. So go to squarespace.com, start your free trial, check it out. My guess is you're going to like it. When you do, enter the offer code LONGFORM at checkout. You'll get 10% off your first purchase and a free domain. That's LONGFORM, L-O-N-G-F-O-R-M, for 10% off your first purchase Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. Also sponsoring the show this week, Blue Apron. And uh, here's the thing you might not know about Blue Apron, they care. They care about where your ingredients come from because not all ingredients are created equal. And with Blue Apron, for less than 10 bucks per person per meal, you can get easy to follow recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients. And those ingredients are gonna come from 150 local farms, ranches, and fisheries from across the United States. All of that is gonna show up right to your door The food is delicious, and it's from the right places. Here's some meals that are available in February, just to wet your whistle a little bit. Cashew chicken stir-fry with tango mandarins and jasmine rice. Udon noodle soup with miso and soft-boiled eggs. Or how about some roasted pork with apple, walnut, and farro salad and crispy beramundi? with quinoa and roasted carrot salad delicious check out this week's menu right now and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash long that's three free meals with free shipping at blueapron.com slash long form you're going to love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with blue apron so don't wait blue apron a better way to cook now let's get back to evan and anna
2: I want to talk a little bit about how, how Wonket got started or how you got started with that because I feel like that's a second example of this sort of like center of the internet universe, like alternate center of the internet <laughs> universe in a way. And so what were you doing when that came about?
1: Right. So job at Mother Jones, fast forward six years, something like that. Um, I got married, moved to D.C., um, and then, you know, it was not a boom time for journalism jobs. Um, The web had not quite really exploded.
2: This is, like, 2004?
1: 2004. Yeah, 2003, actually. 2003. 2003. And I was, you know, like, doing freelancing and... You know, had I had a personal blog, which I updated like you know, not frequently, but it had a tiny little following in among people in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, Corey Sicha was a reader, and he's a fine reader to have. He's a fine reader to have, and he was working for Nick Denton. And so when Nick decided he wanted to do a, at the time conceived of as a, you know, Gawker for DC. Corey put my name up, and I don't know if there was like a, I had any competitors exactly, but it never, it actually just felt like, here, do you want to do this? And um, actually, like, what a lot of people don't realize is most important part of Wonket was for three months, I did it, you know, password protected, that only a handful of people like at Gawker could read it. Oh, because we like were just trial. trying to figure out what the tone was like what the like sensibility was because it turns out like i couldn't really replicate the gawker insider knowingness because i wasn't really an insider <laughs> like you know my husband worked my then husband worked at the post but worked in the book section <laughs> um <laughs> like you weren't
2: like sourced up in DC and no, Congress, and
1: no. And I also like Nick wanted stuff like, you know, like who's sitting at the where at the Palm, and I'm like, I'm not. I was living in Arlington, I'm like, I'm not going to haul my ass to the Palm every day, like you know. So we couldn't really do like I, we like I just didn't replicate. I could I didn't feel like I could exactly replicate what they were doing at Gawker, but um, we kind of settled on what I then came to call like the housewife after too many margaritas, like the politics of C-SPAN-obsessed housewife after too many margaritas, which, you know, my alcoholism was not quite in full swing yet. Um, so it was still just true and not tragic. <laughs> so that was kind of the persona.
2: And how, how did it, how did you know when you'd found the right one?
1: It, I mean, literally, it was, so, it was trial and error. Yeah. Like, And I guess it just started to flow a little bit and also like that kind of like wisecracking, but a little bit, I'm going to get in trouble for the kind of word I'm using. I mean, I want to say daffy, like not dumb or anything, but just kind of like, I don't care what I don't know. Like, I am really fascinated by all of this. I'm going to get some of it wrong. Like a certain fangirl aspect to it, you know, because I am, what was true about that persona besides just the drinking was like... I think this is actually one of the ways the persona came up, which is I realized I was watching um, the White House press briefing and that I could recognize White House correspondents from their profile, Uh like, (laughs) because I watched a lot of Uh C-SPAN, you know, and I watch a lot of Sunday shows. And so I knew who all these White House correspondents were, like, in the same way that other people might know, I don't know, soap opera stars or sports figures, like that was sort of my constellation of like kind of famous people. Mm-hmm. And no small amount of Wanchet's success though was found in how desperate those people are for attention. Yeah. Like so even fake fangirling people are like, "Oh yes, I've been recognized."
2: <laughs> how what was the space between you and the the character that was a well, characters may not the right word. Yeah, no, it's like the...
1: persona, like tone. I mean, I think that you would find if you got to know me in everyday life, like I am not nearly as vulgar or as abrasive maybe, or like unthinking, you know, and and then like, again, the one cat persona was kind of deliberately unthinking, like I'm going to offend some people and I don't care. I'm a human person, like in actual conversation with people, like I still, like I I kind of don't want to hurt their feelings. I mean, maybe I'm a little more abrasive than your average bear. (laughs) And that's one of the reasons why I think I'm good at interviewing people, actually, because I do have some piece inside me that's missing where I just ask a question without thinking how it sounds Uh to that person. (laughs) Which Sidebar. When I interviewed Joe Buck, the first question I asked him was, what does it feel like to have so many people hate you? <laughs>
2: just reading that interview. That came out last week? Yeah. Maybe? Yeah, I guess and before the Super Bowl. Like my movie. husband
1: was like, who's so much more socially epped, right? Like he's like a, a normal human being, more than normal human being about like social interact. He's like very like gracious and charming. And he was like, I can't believe you asked the, that was the first question you asked him. I can't believe that. That's so rude. And I'm like, well, I'm just like, I know.
2: But also, was not just... at least the way it was written uh, in the final piece was not just a lot of people would say like some, it seems like some people out there don't (laughs) like you. What you said is every single person I asked said (laughs) that they thought you were an asshole.
1: Which is just true. Like that's actually, you know, and that is actually how I said it, which is like every single person. And I actually told him the story that's not in the piece, which is that I was telling someone in a coffee shop, I'm about to interview Joe Buck and a stranger Sitting, you know, at the next next table was like, oh, I hate that guy.
2: <laughs> Here in Minneapolis, where people are so nice,
1: but also they have a thing against him because of like a grudge of some player that he, like, whatever. But anyway,
2: so so you're you've you've got that in your nature, but right. But when you when you started getting. Like pretty strong, like condemnation, because it was also like wrapped up in this like blogging era where like right. real journalists were saying like, "There what were are so these bloggers many, out; they were, they're not doing any there reporting." There were lots of panels. Yes, there were lots yes. and lots of panels, and the, very like stentorian <laughs> complaints. But did you feel <laughs> like
1: bloggers did the briefing
2: <laughs> the it didn't? It truly did not bother you to sort of like put this stuff out there and then have people.
1: Maybe that's another like missing. Piece of ligament, you know, in my personality, in that I have this in common with Joe Buck, which is on the one hand, I do think of myself as a fairly sensitive person and I get my feelings hurt, sure, you know. But there's something that's weird when it's a lot of people, it's easier to be like, oh well. You know? Uh Like when a lot of people are denouncing you, like it all kind of blends into one big denunciation. And Especially also, I mean, this is actually maybe the most important thing, which is that I believed in what I was doing. Yeah. If I had any insecurity as a writer, and I'm sure this is something we all probably share, which is that I am made the most anxious and the most sensitive to criticism when I know I fucked up. Mm-hmm. You know, when I know I should have made that extra phone call, when I know I should have used a different word, when I went a little too far over a line. You know, like that is when other people's criticism will just take me down, like 2005 inauguration, George Bush's second term, had existed in the motorcade to the White House. One of the Bush girls did the Hook'em Horns figure. Mm -hmm. And I'm from Texas and I know what that is, but I decided to play dumb and was like made it like a joke about. Black Sabbath and devil worship. Uh And I made a a reference to drinking the blood of babies. And people were like, blood libel reference, how dare you? And I was like, oh, I shouldn't have said that.
0: It's just
2: a tiptoe over the line.
1: Yeah. Just like one hair, like it would have been fine to go like hyperbole with just sort of generic violence, Mm -hmm. but doing, making a reference that has specifically coded history like shouldn't have done that
2: yeah now i'm am it's gonna be hard to like go back to some straight like process questions <laughs> but i do <laughs> i do want to ask you about the the interviews you're doing for the new york times gonna, magazine because yes, i love those interviews those. yes I, and interviews in general like you i've went back and read older interviews that you've done when you're gq and other places mm-hmm. um and i'm wondering uh besides being sort of like brutally honest if you feel like you have a particular interviewing style or technique?
1: I actually listen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, it's a cliche. You've probably heard that from other people who do interviews, but it's amazing how few people realize that at least, at least half of the job is just listening to the answer and letting that answer determine your next step. I also do think that I'm somewhat impatient, which can be helpful in that I, especially when I'm interviewing celebrities, this is a thing that I see happening and I think that my personality is particularly suited to deal with it, which is that, you know, I do a lot of research for my interviews and so when celebrities are on a junket, like I'm familiar with the stories they've already told. Mm -hmm. And so I tend to be like, yes. Thank you, but can we move on to the… Like,
2: yes, I know that one. Yeah.
1: I mean, to just say to them, yeah, I, I read the interview where you talked about that, so can we, <laughs> you know, get to the next thing that uh-huh. maybe, you know, or I ask them a question about that anecdote, you know, that, like, made me think. Because, like, I have found that even celebrities, people who are interviewed, you know, kind of as part of their job, are receptive and responsive to being heard. Like they're bored with their own stories a lot of the time, right? Like they're bored with the questions that they get. And I think to ask them something that like shows you've been listening, you know, like sometimes that's even for someone famous, like it's a little bit different, you know.
2: That someone was listening to them at all.
1: Yeah, that someone's like not just like, "Uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And also I think the other thing that I bring um, to interviews is that my overriding question for most people that I talk to, like that informs you most of what I'm asking is how did you get to be who you are? Mm-hmm. Like what made you the person that you are today? And that is something that I sometimes ask that exact question. And so even celebrities are like, um, wait, that's not a question they get all the time. You know, and yeah. yet, I everyone has a good answer to that question. It is impossible to not have a story as an answer to that question.
2: In addition to cat being uh, a sort of form that was developing at the time, you were also kind of like on the vanguard of like getting online abuse. Yeah. Like this was before like <laughs> like people were on Twitter, and right. this was before Twitter, and before like everyone was getting online abuse, or right. at least everyone.
1: And uh, um, a certain type. this is maybe a good t- time to talk about the ass-fucking. Yeah, yeah. let's talk about that. <laughs> um, because, you know, a lot of the abuse that women get online has to do with sexual degradation. Yeah. And I got that as much as anybody. And my solution was to just be like, okay, I'm a horny housewife. Like, fine. Make all the sex jokes you want, because that is exactly what this character you know, likes mm-hmm. or is like does it doesn't bother her? You know, the ass fucking in particular, um, as far as like a reference, actually came about because um, already having become kind of a vulgar, like using a lot of foul language and making that kind of part of the persona. Um, I don't know if you recall, in two thousand four, there was the federal marriage amendment was up. You know, um, it was a you know gay baiting tactic that Carl Rove dreamed up so that people who were against gay marriage would turn out to vote. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, well, you know, if we're going to talk about this amendment, we might as well call it what it's really about, which is the federal no ass fucking amendment. I mean, like, let's be honest, like, that's what old white guys in the Senate are really freaked out about. So. I just called it the the federal no-ass-fucking amendment every time it came up. And for some reason, like, people thought turning that word back on to me would insult me mm-hmm. or make me uncomfortable or... And I just, you know, like...
2: But it became, like, weirdly associated with... Yeah, the, I know. The and, it, like, I mean,
1: health. if you could do a word search, like, it wasn't, like, a thing that, like... I, like, personally, like, it's not actually a source of a lot of fascination to me. (laughs) (laughs) But people really, like, once you say that, like, for some reason, it becomes like, oh, my God, you know. So there was that, and, like, also um, there was the Washingtonian scandal. Yeah, I remember that, um, yeah. Where she had been a, she was a congressional aide who... Kept a blog, and one of the entries in the blog when she was still anonymous had to do with having anal sex and receiving a blender in return. So, and that was something that I still find hilarious and tragic. But in the persona of Wan-Kett, I was like, oh my God, like genius, but still asked for, you know, a dishwasher at least. Well, that, but also that,
2: <laughs> that I mean, if that felt like uh, that was when the blog like went mainstream or something like it good or maybe it already was but it, it like, took of, off it, in this it, crazy well, way
1: it, it took off in this crazy way because she t- chose to come out to me mm-hmm. like it because i was a, she thought of me as somebody sympathetic i didn't go out and like beat the bushes for to find her like she came to me uh-huh. and then you know i did an interview with her and she had her own journey in life but yeah that I mean that caught a lot of people's attention but it was a relatively like Brief moment in you know the lifespan of Wonka. Yeah, um,
2: maybe it's just more memorable. Maybe that's why it's I think super. Of it as me- time it's memorable.
1: Um, you know, it brings a lot of like different things together. It was that though that um, like I started getting booked on TV, mm-hmm. uh, and I remember it's the first time I ever appeared on cable news, and I learned. A couple things right out the gate. One, have them turn the monitor off in the studio so you don't like your eyes don't drift to yourself. Because it's hard not to, if the monitors are on in a studio, it's really hard not to like watch your own image. Yeah.
2: And then you look really sh- shifty if, you're, if right. your eyes are not looking always directly into the camera.
1: Right. And then I had the good sense, and I think Corey actually might have been someone that counseled me on this, um, to resist becoming like the sex scandal expert. That's still something people will try to book me on cable to talk about. Really? Yeah. But I just don't, just, nope.
2: And you resisted that by saying no, no. to interviews or yeah. by in the interview saying... No, no two to interviews. Yeah. Well, you wrote this thing, I actually couldn't, I don't know what the date is on it, for The Baffler that I thought was really mm-hmm. fascinating about about being on TV and like mm-hmm. why you go on TV for what they call hits. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what interested me was the sort of frankness of it, which was like, this this serves a purpose uh, for me and the publications that I work for. It's also like a very weird experience, and you describe the experience of makeup and and the
1: car service, uh, and, the
2: car service. Yeah. Um, but also that there's something really uh, I can't remember the word, but like energizing about it. Like that's
1: if you're good at it. Yeah, um, yeah. Like I think my frank analysis of like cable news hits, like for me personally, is that. I don't have any illusions that I am contributing very much to the national conversation. You know, I mean, I think people will disagree with this, but cable news has sort of gotten better than it used to be. In what
2: period do you think it's gotten better?
1: I think the last few years have gotten better in part because everyone's chosen a lane. You know, I think if you think back like even eight years ago, it used to be much more two people yelling at each other. But most of the networks now have gotten into, like, well, CNN just has the Brady Bunch, right? So it's hard to have two people yelling at each other when you have eight people on a panel.
2: Yeah. But they soon they're going to have, like, 20 people. It,
1: like, buzz in. Half of I whom feel are like, paid political consultants yeah.
2: who just say, like, one line. Right.
1: So you don't have two people yelling at each other if you have eight people on set. And then, you know, Fox just has two people agreeing with each other. And MSNBC, to a certain degree, also has two people presenting somewhat different perspectives of the same basic opinion Mm -hmm. and that's not incredibly useful but it's better than yelling at each other Mm. i mean although it it's also a reflection of how we're being siloed so maybe it's not good for america but it's like less upsetting to watch (laughs)
2: like yeah well do you sometimes come out of those segments and say that was really good like i think if someone was watching that they learned something
0: Mm.
1: Well, you know, I try not to go on if I don't have something to say, which seems like a really low bar, but I do think that there are people who do go on without having something to say because that's what they're paid to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm lucky that I don't have to just turn up when they tell me to turn up, you know. I can say, yeah, I don't no, don't have anything to say about that subject, so please, you know, find someone else. And I do try to say things that maybe haven't been said before. Mm-hmm. And that has, you know, worked and I try to be honest, you know, I'm thinking about like there was a couple different things that happened this past election cycle where I just decided to be absolutely honest mm-hmm. about what I thought, um, which is not always what people do. I think, uh, I'm,
2: I think I am I I think know, or at least I, I can think of a couple of examples. Yeah. But it seemed like those moments, like there was a moment, I'll just offer my example. Mm-hmm. So there was a moment where you said, before the election was decided, obviously, where mm-hmm. you said, like, if Hillary Clinton wins, it'll be black and brown people who will have saved us mm-hmm. from Donald Trump. And that went, like, pretty viral. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another one where you got emotional talking about Trump and the sexual, the assault. sexual assaults. Yeah. And... It made me wonder, like, what are the incentives when you're sitting there in terms of like, I mean, I I would think it's like, it's a good thing when something goes viral.
1: Yeah, it is. And also, like, I don't care if I never get booked again, really. Um, So I am okay with saying, you know, I think that Trump supporters are nostalgic for a time of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Like, Make America Great Again is a specific appeal to a time when white supremacy was more entrenched. Just, it's like saying they're nostalgic for a time when, you know, there were more union jobs. That's also true, mm-hmm. you know.
2: It was part and parcel of that era. Yeah,
1: but... it's to me, it's just, it's a not controversial thing, you know. it also controversial for a time when gender roles are more defined. I mean, these are not judgments on individual Trump voters. This is just, if you were making a reference to a time when America was great again, there are certain things about that era that are just true you're nostalgic for a time before gay marriage you know Um, you personally may be in favor of gay marriage but clearly you don't have a problem with it not existing if you're (laughs) if you're nostalgic for a time before it was legal (laughs) ask a gay person they'll feel differently you know like or most gay people would probably feel differently
2: um so your attitude going in is I don't care if they book me on the show. I mean, I want
1: I don't want to embarrass myself, mm-hmm. but if I don't get booked because of something I said that's honest, like that's okay. You know, and I think, and I, I mean, I guess, I, you know, I haven't pushed things too far outside the bounds because I do continue to be booked as of this particular conversation. <laughs> um, and the other thing I'd say about the sexual assault issue was that that was a split second decision. On my part, because it was something that was genuinely happening. What happened was that it was Lawrence O'Donnell's show, and he was reading from the account of the People writer. Mm-hmm. And he got to the part where she talked about um, what it was like in the aftermath to doubt herself. And did that really happen? And did I do anything? And... Um, you know that put me back like my personal experience was having someone you know sexually assault me the experience itself was not a particularly violent or abusive or traumatic but the aftermath of what did i do and is it me and did i imagine that that's the part that it cripples you a little bit like And women have to deal with that just all the fucking time. So imagine if it happens over and over to you, like the way that that chips away at your identity and your resolve and your belief in who you are, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, that sort of brings us back to like the value of being on TV because that does feel like in looking at the way that that spread, it's possible to have this like genuine connection moment, which I think I feel like happened again with – Carrie Fisher and you started this like Twitter hashtag around mental illness and it also had this effect. And I wonder like, do you feel that as strongly as you feel like the vitriol?
1: I I think the positive connections definitely, I allow myself to feel more vibrantly than the negative ones. Because those also feel real. Whereas when people are sending me hate mail or threats, one defense I have against that is like, you don't know me, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know, like, I don't know. That wasn't something I always was able to say. Like, I think that's something that as I've become a stronger person, like it's been easier for me to be like the person that they're attacking, like they don't, it's not me. Like, this is saying something about who they are and what they think. And it's not really, you know, like today, actually, just for example, like I never make jokes about atheism on Twitter. Don't make jokes about atheism on Twitter. There is no one that is going to be happy. But like, I made the joke, atheism is the least violent religion, which is not really like a joke joke, but I made it just like kind of like, it's nonsensical and also kind of funny. And I know it was kind of trolling both sides. Yeah. Makes you think. Yeah, I thought so. (laughs) You know, I thought it was, I I meant it just kind of as a toss off, like whatever. um, Because people were like, I think the whole debate over what what is the violent, you know, which religion is more violent is just a stupid debate to have. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to point out that it was a stupid debate to have. But like some conservative retweeted me and I started getting like, don't you know about, you know, Mao and Stalin? And and a fair amount of it was you atheist bitch go back to your, you know, whatever. Like there was a lot of like you're atheist gods or you, you worship at the altar of secular humanism. And, like, I'm an out Christian.
2: <laughs> I mean, that's one that the, <laughs> like, just a second of research like, would have produced. Like, I'm, uh, like,
1: super on my sleeve about the fact that I believe in God. In fact, I'm saved by Jesus Christ. You're, and, in fact,
2: one of the few, I think, let's say, left-leaning politically uh, writers who had a friendly profile in Breitbart, or it's like yeah. been written about in a friendly way in right. Breitbart. well,
1: although it was, it was sort of like, like you know, um, dog walks on two legs kind of thing. Yeah. Like, it was a little, oh, my God, can you believe it? <laughs> and, She's accepted Jesus Christ as her savior.
2: And imagine what she must be going through with her liberal friends. Right. So it was a little yeah, element yeah, to that. But, like, yeah, but, but, but you've been very, you wrote about. I've written about it. I've written about a few times.
1: Like, I'm pretty open about it, you know, on Twitter. Like, I... You know, my faith is very important to me, and when people have sincere questions, I am happy to answer them. But that's just the perfect example for like how I know this isn't about me. Like Mm -hmm. when people are writing that stuff, like they're writing to some imagined person, you know, not actually me. The other thing that happens with trollers, I learned this back like I probably like even like in high school, like working at the high school newspaper. Um, No, it must have been college. It must have been college newspaper where some journalism advisor said the way that you really disarm angry letter writers is to write them back Mm -hmm. because they don't expect an answer and they're usually somewhat chagrined to discover that there is a real person on the other side. Now, the Internet has changed that a little bit, but like one thing I like to do sometimes, like the other day, I said something, I I made, I posted, this is now actually a pinned tweet on my profile page, which is that sometimes, you know, what's happening overwhelms me and I start to cry, which is just, or tears come or something like that. Again, some right winger retweeted that and I got this whole bunch of like snowflake, you know, kind of like making fun of me and like Mm -hmm. drink your tears, kind of stuff. But for some reason, like someone with a verified account, that's actually why I chose to interact. Someone with a verified account was like, maybe you need medication. And I wrote back, I'm actually on you know, Wellbutrin and Seroquel. What do you want? And he wrote back and said, I work, you know, like I work out at the gym and play hockey. And I said, oh, I have a lot of friends here in Minnesota who play in adult leagues. Do you play in a league or just pick up? And he wrote back, I play in a league. And I said, well, oh, how long have you been playing? Like, it, it, and then eventually, like someone wrote me and was like, you guys went from like snowflake, you know, mental illness <laughs> shaming to talking about his hockey league really fast. And I'm like, yeah, you know, like it's just interesting to see like when you respond with like a genuinely like intimate piece of information Mm -hmm. to someone who's trying to mock you, like humans, even in this day and age are like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Right. You're a person, you know, I've had it happen a few times.
2: I want. We got off uh, a little bit. I wanted to go back to the end of working for Wonkette because okay. I'm. I'm interested in. You've. We can't cover like every publication you've ever written for since no, then. No, because um, it's, it's, it's. It's pretty much a catalog of. Yeah, did uh, it exist? Any place that writes about, did <laughs> about politics. Did that publication
1: exist? I worked for it.
2: But post that era, did you feel like people wanted, like Wonkette from mm-hmm. you when you went places? Yeah. And and how did you, push back against that and.
1: Not do that. Especially, like, you know, bottoming out and going to treatment for alcohol and drug abuse. Total, like, charm for that. Um,
2: was that it, really? You know, like kind
1: it? I mean, not really. I mean, I think, you know, I did manage to carve out a kind of, like, she's the funny writer about politics. You know, politics, but with a wink. Like, I sort of had developed that beat in D.C., Um, by the time my drug and alcohol intake was overtaking my output of writing. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that bottoming out and going to treatment actually did provide me with this like real pivot point in my life. You know, not just in terms of like my recovery, but also I took seven months off from the world.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: like I was in long term treatment I was in treatment for four months with no internet access and or very limited internet access and then I lived in a sober house for three months after that you know with like other women and like had a chore list and like had a curfew mm-hmm. um, which is a humbling experience for someone that you know has been to the white house <laughs> <laughs> and like you know done important things and talked to important people been on TV been on TV like you know my house mother didn't give a shit about that yeah. I broke curfew yeah. right and I also you know I kind of had to just disappear from career stuff like you know my editors were very gracious but like I just had to say goodbye I mean like you know I had to quit <laughs> like you can't you know and they I, also my work had started to suffer so uh, mm-hmm. you know It was for the best. And I had to come up with a real, I had to make a decision as to whether or not I wanted to continue being a journalist. And it was an open question. Like I really did consider going back to grad school. I considered, you know, getting a job at a coffee shop and working on a novel. I considered just other stuff and then was offered a job at Guardian writing about politics for them. And um, I'm sure they came to me with the same kind of like she's going to do the irreverent Mm -hmm. stuff kind of profile in their heads, but thank God that they also had like a wider imagination for Mm -hmm. me. So when I was like, you know, I kind of also want to write about policy and I kind of want to maybe write some serious stuff. and like these things are important to me um they were you know
2: and what other than them offering that job was that the thing that tipped you into saying i want to come back or what 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 know. where did you land it then? really
1: it's funny because like i it was all happened kind of at the same time yeah and i was very fortunate like that their timing was like as i was getting out of sober living you know <laughs> um if they had delayed their offer a month, like, you know, maybe I would see you across, you know, the bar at a coffee shop while you're here. Uh-huh. It still is, I feel like, like I get nostalgia for having those choices. Like I get a nostalgia about like, gosh, you know, I could be working at a bookstore. <laughs> I could have, I could have decided to work in bookstores, you know. Oh, well. I mean, you hear this kind of stuff from people in recovery or people who've had some kind of big life change a lot, but like all of this is gravy, you know? This is all awesome. I love my career. I love what I get, you know, I'm privileged to do even in this terrible shit geyser environment. (laughs) You know, I get paid to write, which you know as well as anyone like is a privilege. Yes. You
2: know. A lot of things have to go right in order for that to happen. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I get paid to write about mostly what I want to write about. I get to like find out about cool stuff and interview cool people, and not to be over dramatic, but you know I could be dead. Like, <laughs> things had gone slightly differently in my life. I wouldn't I wouldn't be enjoying any of this stuff. So, if I was working in a bookstore or coffee shop or. I don't know, in seminary school.
2: That would also be great. That would also be pretty cool. Well, thank you for coming on this podcast. I really appreciate it.
1: Your sincere inquiries are also appreciated.
2: (laughs) That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. Thanks to Anna Marie Cox for hosting the podcast in her home and for making a quite delicious cup of coffee Thanks also to Nathan Thornburg of Roads and Kingdoms who suggested that I uh, get in touch with Anna while I was in Minneapolis. Thank you to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. Thanks to our intern, Courtney Harrell, and to our sponsors, MailChimp, Squarespace, and Blue Apron. We will see you next week.
0: Why do you run? Why does anyone